Welcome back to Anti-Social Studies. Last episode, we gave the ladies what they wanted. Suffrage. Ooh, sexy suffrage. And today, we're finishing off the progressive era with World War I. Like, we're actually finishing the era off because it died after the war. Spoiler alert. Before we get to the episode, a friendly reminder that you should join my Patreon. I cover current events and mini episodes, and it's a great way to show your appreciation for this podcast. I also have some exciting projects in the works that I'm only able to do because of my Patreon supporters. Hint, it's merch. Anyway, check it out. For people in education, it's just $3 a month. Or if you can't swing it, then just keep spreading the word about this podcast. I mean, I literally record it in my kitchen, people. I need all the help I can get. Okay, so today's episode is all about World War I, or Woodrow Wilson's War. Why did we go to war? How did the war change the American experience back home? And how did the war end the progressive era and lead us into the roaring 20s? This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1. Wilson and the War. No, we can't really understand World War I in America without talking about Woodrow Wilson. And we can't understand Woodrow Wilson without talking about Tommy Wilson, because that was actually his name. He dropped his first name, Thomas, when he decided that his middle name, Woodrow, was more distinguished. But personally, I would have loved being able to talk about the progressive presidents, Teddy, Taft, and Tommy. And I'm really disappointed that he robbed me of that. How dare you? So Wilson was born in 1856 in the Confederate States of America. What? The Civil War seems like it happened on a different planet than World War I, and yet Wilson's dad was a chaplain in the Confederate Army. Like, Woodrow Wilson, as a young boy, watched Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, like, get paraded through the streets. This makes Wilson the first Southern-born president elected since the war. He was dyslexic, unable to read until he was 10, but then he went on to become our most educated president. He's the only one ever with a Ph.D., Wilson got his doctorate in government and history, which, I'll be honest, makes me predisposed to love him. He ended up as the president of Princeton, and he literally studied and wrote books on American government. He was a progressive in that he believed society should be improved based on expertise and reform. He liked to compare the American and British systems, believing our government could be improved by adopting the multi-party model where politicians had to build a coalition. And he was able to test out this theory when he became president in 1912, promising to conduct himself more as a prime minister than a president. He was one of the first to drop a clear legislative agenda before taking office. He was the first president to appear before Congress in person, presenting his proposals to them directly, and he did build coalitions inside his own party to get stuff done. I mean, in a lot of ways, Wilson was incredibly successful as president. He reformed tariffs and taxes. He settled a complicated economic debate by establishing the Federal Reserve System that could have some control over the national economy. He built on Teddy and Taft's regulation of corporations by establishing the Federal Trade Commission. He established the first government loans to farmers, prohibited child labor, although the Supreme Court struck that one down. I guess it violated like a five-year-old's right to work. I don't know. And he mandated an eight-hour workday for railway workers, which were enormous wins for progressives. But on the flip side, Wilson really struggled with foreign relations, which is unfortunate because it's kind of the thing you're remembered for when you're the president during a world war. Bummer. He was super confused with what to do about Mexico while they were fighting and sorting out their own post-revolutionary government. Like, first he said he would stay out of it, 
Then he tried to overthrow the military government and was surprised when Mexicans were like, um, no, we don't like that. Then his army spent some time unsuccessfully chasing after Pancho Villa, who'd been raiding across the border. Like, long story short, it was a hot mess. But everything came to a head in August of 1914. Europe plunged into war because a Serb shot an Austrian. If you want more detail, I did a whole episode about it in season one. And to add to the chaos, Wilson's wife, Ellen, died just one week after war was declared. Wilson, in general, was an anti-imperialist and against involving the U.S. in foreign wars. Like, sure, he might meddle in some Latin American countries, but that doesn't really count, right? And for the most part, the country agreed. There were full-out pacifists, led especially by suffragettes like Carrie Chapman Catt and Jane Addams, and there were those who wanted to stay out of the war but argued that we should at least prepare for war, hopefully to prevent anyone from attacking us and dragging us into war. But some did want to enter the conflict right away, as soon as World War I starts in Europe. And one American who desperately wanted to fight in Europe was... I'll give you one guess. Teddy Roosevelt! Let's go! The former president was vocal in his criticism of Wilson's neutrality, and when the U.S. finally did declare war, he requested permission to head up a division and go fight himself in France. But the Secretary of War was like, Teddy, you're almost 60, and you're a former president. You can't go fight in the trenches. Sorry, Teddy. But all four of his sons went on to fight. His youngest, Quentin, was killed in Germany and became an American martyr for the war effort. Anyway, back to Wilson in the beginning of the war. When the war was just starting, it really wasn't that clear which side we might support. I mean, there was a really strong pro-British contingent in the military and in Wilson's cabinet, but I mean, there were also a lot of German-Americans who hoped we might support the Central Powers. In the end, we went with Britain, mostly because our economies were closely tied, but also because the British cut the transatlantic telegraph cables so that they could control all news of the war to the Americans. Sneaky. By the time the U.S. finally entered the war, we had already loaned the Allies, mostly Britain and France, $2 billion. Whoa. So why did the U.S. eventually enter the war? I mean, basically the Germans just wouldn't leave us alone. First, in 1915, a German submarine, or U-boat, sank a British passenger ship called the Lusitania. 1,100 passengers, mostly civilians, died, including 128 Americans on board. Now, to be fair... The Germans had warned Americans about not getting on any ships belonging to the Allies. They were like, hey, we're trying to sink British and French ships, so if you don't want to risk it, don't get on those ships. And then Americans got on those ships anyway and were like, hey, I can't believe you sunk that ship. But still. Wilson sent official warnings to Germany, and they responded by promising to stop sinking merchant ships without warning, I guess. One year later, Wilson was re-elected on the slogan, he kept us out of war. Now, don't get too cocky, Wilson. Let's not put up a mission accomplished banner just yet. The war is not over. Three years into war, we're still staying neutral, and Wilson saw his role as a global peace broker. I mean, he's literally studied governments and world history for decades. This is his chance to use his expertise to teach Europe how to stop burning the world down every time some guy assassinates some other guy. It would be as if I became president. Ooh, hold on. Let's just imagine that for a second. It would be as if I became president and had the chance to reorganize the global system based on all the podcast episodes I've written. It would be an amazing opportunity and super embarrassing if it didn't work. Foreshadowing. So Wilson launched what he called a peace offensive in Europe. He sent diplomats to the countries fighting on either side and asked them to accept an American mediation to end the war. He called for peace without victory and claimed that he could establish a new system that would prevent all future wars. Whoa, <laughs> those, are, 
Some big swings, Woodrow. At the same time, though, he was being cautious and building up America's military strength. At this point, he was realizing that the best way to ensure a seat at the table during peace talks was to contribute to the war effort. And Germany wanted to prevent the U.S. from entering the war at all costs. Cut to January of 1917. British spies intercepted a communication from Germany. A German diplomat named Zimmerman had sent a secret telegram to Mexico. It was called, wait for it, the Zimmerman Telegram. And it was asking Mexico to invade the United States. What the hell, Zimmerman? We're trying to broker peace and you repay us by threatening Texas, not Texas. Basically, the Germans were offering Mexico support if they engaged the U.S. in a war that would keep us out of Europe. And Americans were not down with that. Not to mention that over the last few months, Germans had resumed unrestricted submarine warfare and they sank six American ships. Basically, the Germans were hoping to weaken the United States before they could give much military support to the Allies. But the irony, of course, is that by trying to prevent U.S. entry into the European theater, they basically pushed us into joining the war. So on April 2nd, 1917, the U.S. declared war on Germany to, according to Wilson, make the world safe for democracy. I mean, kind of somewhat surprisingly... Wilson wasn't a terrible war president, and this is mostly because of his progressive era approach of recognizing what he doesn't know and delegating decisions to experts. So General John J. Pershing oversaw the American Expeditionary Force, and financiers and bureaucrats oversaw economic mobilization on the home front, including a young Herbert Hoover. Oh, Hoover, the future is not going to be kind to you. The U.S. instituted its first draft through the Selective Service Act, and this is critical because, y'all, when the U.S. declared war, its army was made up of 127,000 soldiers who were basically civil police officers more than professional soldiers. By the end of the war, the armed forces numbered 5 million men and women, and over 2 million of those soldiers fought in France before the end of the war. That is enormous escalation of our armed forces. American troops didn't see a ton of action in Europe, but the action they saw was intense and critical to ending the war. American soldiers walked into the trenches filled with troops who were muddy, bloody, and exhausted. By 1917, half of the French army had mutinied and were refusing to attack the Germans. Between France and Britain, they had lost 5 million men already. And the Allies had spent years in a brutal war of attrition and in walks fresh-faced American troops with an annoying amount of energy. They were nicknamed Doughboys because they were fresh out of the oven. These Doughboys were critical because the same year that the U.S. entered the war, the Russians left. They had a little communist revolution to deal with. So millions of German soldiers were now freed up on the Eastern Front and marching toward France. Oh no. The only thing really that saved the Western Front was the infusion of the 2 million American soldiers in 1917. So in March of 1918, American troops fought alongside French troops, including colonial troops like Moroccans, to defend the city of Paris. Later that year, the U.S. enacted the largest military offensive in its history in the Argonne Forest. Over 1.2 million American troops broke through the German line, finally breaking the stalemate in the trenches. During that offensive, on just one day, September 26th, the U.S. fired more shells in a few hours than had been fired in the entire American Civil War. So this battle tipped the scales, and the Germans soon agreed to an armistice on November 11th, 1918. It was actually on 11-11 at 11-11 a.m. How adorable. And hey, that's now our Veterans Day. But while millions of Americans were fighting in France life at home was also changing drastically. Act two, World War I on the home front. 
So, I mean, I'll be honest, World War I doesn't have near the same impact on the home front as World War II will, but it definitely set a lot of wheels in motion, especially for women and minorities. With men going off to war, jobs opened up. One million women joined the workforce for the first time, and eight million women switched to better industrial jobs. When the war ended, most women returned home or to their previous jobs, but it began to plant the seed that women were capable of holding jobs traditionally reserved for men. Oh, imagine that. Women also were involved directly in the war effort. Although female physicians were outright denied jobs as doctors in the armed forces, thousands of women became nurses in Europe, working for organizations like the Salvation Army and the Red Cross, in addition to the U.S. Army and Navy Nurse Corps. U.S. Army nurses were actually the first Americans to arrive in Europe ahead of the U.S. military. Women served as ambulance drivers, mechanics, and truck drivers, delivering medical supplies, and sometimes driving through artillery fire to retrieve wounded soldiers. And side note, I know she's not American, but this is so fascinating. One of those ambulance drivers in World War I was Marie Curie. And like she invented a mobile x-ray unit and equipped trucks with them, nicknamed Little Curies. By the end of the war, she had trained 150 women to be x-ray operators on the battlefront, which also contributed to her radiation exposure that ultimately led to her death. So that's sad, but it's also really interesting. American women served in communication roles, working telephone switchboards, relaying messages to the front. Although they were somewhat patronizingly nicknamed Hello Girls, they received physical training and observed strict military protocol working near the front line. And the only branch of the military where women officially enlisted was the Navy, thanks to some vague wording in the Naval Act of 1916. 12,000 women enlisted as yeomen, mostly serving stateside in administrative roles left by men. Throughout the Navy, they had the same responsibilities as male counterparts, and they were paid the same amount. What? Get it, ladies? Now, I should mention that most of these women I'm talking about were white women. The American experience is vastly different throughout the 20th century for women of color, but as white women took traditional male jobs, black women were able to shift from domestic employment as housekeepers or nannies to more traditional office or factory work. In general, African Americans were experiencing one of the largest migrations in American history. Between 1914 and 1920, 500,000 black Southerners moved north in what became known as the Great Migration. Henry Ford actually sent recruiters down to the South to bring agricultural workers to join his factories. Many black people jumped at the chance to get the hell out of the Jim Crow South, and they ended up in industrial cities like Chicago, New York, Cleveland, and Detroit. And they capitalized on new job openings. Similarly, over 100,000 Mexicans were encouraged to move into the Southwest to work on farms during the war. Now, we should be wondering at around this point, like, why didn't more American companies capitalize on cheap industrial labor from minorities before now? Well, there's two answers. The simple answer is that they didn't really need to bring black people into the factories much until most of the white men went off to the war. But the more complicated answer is that also the war in Europe basically cut off all immigration from the continent. So cheap labor that had been coming from more racially preferable groups like the Irish, for example, now went away and factory owners were desperate. Ugh, that sucks. I really wish the answer was just that people like Henry Ford read Du Bois's books and like had an epiphany about racial equality, but of course that's not what happened. So World War I was important for establishing urban cultural centers and economic power for black Americans, but it also helped spark a broader discussion about rights. I mean, Woodrow Wilson was traipsing around Europe yelling about making the world safe for democracy. Meanwhile, women and minorities were back home like, oh, that's cute, Woodrow. 
I mentioned it last episode, and we'll talk about it more in a little bit, but suffragettes use that rhetoric to push for the right to vote. Like, why are we more concerned with the German Kaiser and the lack of democracy over there? And African Americans began making a similar argument. The black press especially went after Wilson's ideas pretty hard. The Baltimore Afro-American wrote, quote, let us have a real democracy for the United States, and then we can advise a house cleaning over on the other side of the water. This was exacerbated by the fact that black men were drafted into the military for the first time, and over 1 million men responded, with 370,000 eventually being inducted into the military. So black men were eligible to fight and die, supposedly for democracy overseas, but then they had to return home to a nation that didn't recognize them as full citizens? That's BS. And also not to mention that most of the black service members were not assigned to combat positions. Those were deemed too important and honorable for non-white troops. So most black soldiers worked as manual laborers or cooks, serving the white soldiers. However, the military did create two black combat divisions. The 93rd Division was made up of volunteer black National Guardsmen. I mean, not knowing quite what to do with them and most likely not trusting their combat abilities, the U.S. loaned this division to the French Army for the duration of the war. They performed incredibly well. One of the infantry regiments from New York became known as the famous Harlem Hellfighters. They served for 191 days and gave up zero ground to the Germans. The 93rd Division was the first to reach the Rhine River in Germany after the armistice, and two of the Harlem Hellfighters became the first American soldiers ever awarded the French War Cross. The Harlem Division was also known around the Western Front for their jazz band that introduced black music to war-torn Europe, especially Paris, but more on that next episode. Unfortunately, and really ironically, the other division of black soldiers, the 92nd, had a far different experience because they were serving under white American leadership. White army officers spread lies to French civilians that their own black troops were rapists. And I just want to clarify that. American officers were denigrating their own soldiers because even in war, I guess there's time to be racist. Many white officers saw the black men as a threat and discharged them or court-martialed them on made-up charges, but still, black men joined the military. For one, despite suffering from segregation and mistreatment, the military provided black men some basic services that they wouldn't normally receive as civilians, like a basic education and health care. But more broadly, most African Americans understood that to be treated fully and equally meant also accepting the responsibilities and challenges that came with American citizenship— For many, it was important to show the white majority that they were ready to be productive and beneficial countrymen if they would just be allowed. So World War I was providing new opportunities for previously oppressed groups, especially women and African Americans, but another new aspect of the home front was the introduction of massive government oversight, really for the first time in American history. I mean, to be clear, the government is typically expected to take more control over the country during times of war. Like, Lincoln just straight up suspended habeas corpus and just threw Southern sympathizers in jail with no trial because he believed it would help the war effort. And that was awkward. But what Wilson's administration did during World War I was essentially a total reorganization of the national economy to serve the war under the guidance of the federal government. He created a ridiculous number of wartime agencies to direct the economy and coordinate with companies, unions, and consumers. And this process was definitely shaped by the progressive movement, the idea being that when radical change was necessary, like shifting the entire economy to support a world war, the government should step in. They should put experts or officials in charge and make the changes itself. For example, the War Industries Board coordinated all companies producing war materials, giving them guidelines on what they could produce, allocating raw materials, and sometimes even setting prices. 
Herbert Hoover ran the Food Administration, which monitored food production and consumption, making sure civilians weren't taking critical resources away from our troops overseas. And the Fuel Administration managed coal and oil, and they're the reason why we have daylight savings time, so that we could utilize more natural light and reduce our electricity usage. By the end of the war, the U.S. spent $32 billion. And this was partly funded by raising income taxes and taxing corporations, but over $20 billion came from the sale of war bonds. Government propaganda was a critical part of the war effort in all the nations at war, encouraging citizens to buy bonds, conserve resources, and join the military. For example, the famous Uncle Sam, I Want You poster was first produced during World War I. But government propaganda wasn't just Uncle Sam posters. They established an entire committee on public information dedicated to selling the war to the public. The government hired ad agencies, artists, songwriters, and entertainers to produce content to get Americans behind the war and the government. Nicknamed Four Minute Men, over 75,000 public speakers were sent around the country to speak at movie theaters and public spaces, encouraging audiences to buy war bonds and to report draft dodgers to the authorities. Fears over individuals and groups who might disrupt the war effort were real. Recent immigrants, especially from hotbeds of socialism like Eastern Europe, labor union leaders, and straight up members of the Socialist Party, they were all often targeted as potential threats. Partly to co-opt some of their power, the government created the National War Labor Board, and that dealt directly with workers' demands to prevent strikes from disrupting the war effort. So the government pressured industries to improve wages, introduce an eight-hour workday, and allow unions the right to organize. And all of this was in exchange for labor promising not to disrupt production, meaning not to strike. In just one year, union membership increased by one million people. And on the surface, this is progress for labor unions. But it's progress that is highly controlled and managed by the government, which isn't quite the revolution Karl Marx had called for. And fear over anti-American activity got really dark. The Espionage Act of 1917 made it illegal to aid the enemy or interfere with the war effort. Fine, this kind of makes sense on the surface until you realize that interfering with the war effort is a really vague category that could just mean, I don't know, like questioning whether we should be fighting the war. And the Sedition Act of 1918 went further. This law made it illegal to speak against the war publicly. This meant that basically anyone who criticized the government during wartime could be prosecuted. And over 2,000 citizens were convicted under these two laws. And mostly they were recent immigrants, labor union leaders, and other groups deemed less American. The fear was heightened by the fact that the Bolsheviks had just overthrown the Russian government, making leftist ideas a more real threat than ever before. Now, these new laws were challenged by groups who argued that they violated their First Amendment right to speech, but in 1919, the Supreme Court supported the government in Schenck v. the United States, ruling that the government can restrict speech if it constitutes, quote, a clear and present danger. The defendants in question were two leaders of the Socialist Party who had been sending out literature arguing that a draft was a form of involuntary servitude, which violated the 13th Amendment that ended slavery. But... The Supreme Court sided with the government. And now for a quick ode to Eugene Debs. Oh, Eugene, you fought mistreatment in the railway industry with the same fervor you fought fires as a railway fireman. After leading successful strikes, you ended up in prison where you discovered Karl Marx. Side note, I know very little about prison reform, but I do know that every historical figure who becomes more radical does it in prison. I'm just saying... You put a guy in jail with nothing to do but read and write, and he's going to come out swinging. 
It's like letting women go to college. What did you think was going to happen, dummies? Anyway, oh, Eugene, you ran for president five times as the candidate from the Socialist Party of America. In 1920, you received almost a million votes while you were in prison for violating the Espionage Act. Whoa, say what you will about Eugene, but he never gave up. You lost your citizenship and five elections, but not a place in my heart in this podcast. So in many ways, World War I was two steps forward, one step back for a lot of different groups at home. Like women got the right to vote, but women of color were typically excluded from this progress thanks to Jim Crow. Women entered the workforce only to be mostly pushed out when men returned from the war. African-Americans gained some respect as they fought in the war, but often these were as exceptional cases that did nothing to change people's view of most people of color. And workers got many of the rights they'd been pushing for, but only thanks to the federal government, meaning they could be pretty easily taken away. And on that note, Act 3. In 1919, all hell broke loose. The impact of World War I was enormous. Like, if you haven't already, just go check out my Season 1 episode all about it. But for the United States, World War I was a similar turning point. For one, it established that the U.S. could be a powerful military force if it needed to be. And it definitely established the U.S. as an economic powerhouse, fueling and funding the war effort from across the Atlantic. But as we'll see, for the most part, the U.S. is going to retreat back into its isolationist shell once the war is over. Woodrow Wilson, self-proclaimed global peacemaker, was obviously a major force in the peace negotiations in Paris in 1919. It was there that he presented the world with his 14 points, a list of 14 rules for the world to prevent any future global conflicts. Eh, For the most part, they were ignored. Things like freedom of the seas and disarmament were adorable to imperial superpowers like Great Britain and France. But one idea that caught the attention of oppressed people around the world and at home was Wilson's principle of self-determination. Basically, he argued that the borders of countries should be decided by the people within those borders. Now, in reality, this idea was really meant to be applied to white people, like Balkan nations like Serbia getting to determine their own future, that kind of thing. But colonized people around the world also perked up, right? Gandhi was listening. Ho Chi Minh was listening. Kwame Nkrumah was listening. And women and minorities in the U.S. were listening. W.E.B. Du Bois organized a pan-African congress that he held simultaneously in Paris to pressure the Allies to consider the status of people of color as they built the post-war world. I mean, for the most part, they were ignored. But it's the last of the 14 points that was the most dramatic and the most embarrassing for Woodrow. He proposed a League of Nations with representatives from major countries to help preserve peace and protect each other's independence. And Wilson spent months convincing Europe to join his new club, except Germany and Russia, because they were communists now. Like, this was Wilson's baby, and he got everyone to join. Woohoo! Except, you see, the president doesn't actually have the power to declare war or make peace. That's Congress's job. Damn checks and balances. So Wilson took the treaties established in Paris back to Congress, a Congress that was now controlled by Republicans, a Congress that was controlled by Republicans who were not a fan of Wilson. Oh, no. You see, Wilson had never been super keen on reaching across the aisle and working with the other side. Like, he didn't bring a single Republican representative with him to peace negotiations abroad. Like, he was so egotistical about keeping all of this to himself that he didn't even consider the need to get Congress on board. He just thought, of course, they'll do whatever I tell them to do. 
And I mean, to be honest, a lot of people at home just weren't super excited about joining a permanent alliance with European nations after they'd just been dragged into a world war they didn't want to fight in the first place. And Wilson really refused to give in at all on diplomacy. Like, he literally wrote books on diplomacy, and he saw it as beneath him to give in to career politicians who, frankly, he didn't think were as smart as he was. A group of moderate Republicans led by Henry Cabot Lodge were open to signing the treaty with some amendments, but Wilson refused to cave. Congress refused to pass the treaty twice, forcing Wilson to take his argument to the public. He went across the nation on a speaking tour, giving 39 speeches in three weeks across 8,000 miles, trying to convince the public to urge their senators to ratify the treaty. And, ooh, it didn't work. Like, it really didn't work. In fact, it went so poorly that it basically killed Woodrow Wilson. Soon after the tour, he suffered a stroke, still refusing to compromise from his sickbed, and after a second stroke, he was paralyzed on most of the left side of his body. Although his mind was still sharp, but at this point, his wife Edith stepped up and basically ran his office on his behalf. Those close to him knew how ill he was, but they said nothing as Edith covered up his condition to the public. If any of you watched The West Wing, this is like 100% where they got the inspiration for Abby, aka Rizzo from Greece, to basically like hide the president's MS so that no one would know just how sick he was. It was bad. Edith Wilson controlled who could speak to the president. She often wrote letters and directives with his signature on it. So when you think about it, we've kind of already had our first female president. After Woodrow Wilson left office a few months later, Congress ratified separate treaties with the Central Powers, and the League of Nations was formed without the U.S., significantly weakened. And the post-war economy didn't fare much better. You see, Putting in place all those wartime controls and restrictions is fine, but then when you have to remove all of that oversight in one fell swoop, eh, the economy takes some time to adjust. For example, when restrictions on what people could buy went away, people rushed to buy up goods that had been rationed, and businesses raised their prices that they had been forced to keep low. Yada, yada, yada. This led to rapid inflation. Okay, y'all know how I am with economics. Let's just move on. Also, a bunch of factories had shifted all of their production to wartime materials, knowing that a guaranteed customer in the U.S. government. But now, orders for war materials declined, and they had to lay off workers. Strikes swept the nation as the urban economy struggled. In 1919 alone, there were over 3,600 strikes involving 4 million workers. And all of this is just on top of the fact that the returning soldiers who came home found women and black men in their jobs. It did not go over well. So African-Americans had moved up north for jobs and hopefully better treatment, but when the soldiers returned home, they blamed their economic problems on these new arrivals. Jobs were scarce, housing options in the cities were limited, and black soldiers were also returning home, empowered to push more forcefully for equality. In the summer of 1919, race riots broke out across the nation, starting in Longview, Texas. In Longview, armed white people attacked black parts of town, burning homes and businesses, and killing one black man. It was only stopped after the National Guard and Texas Rangers took control of the city. And of course, no arrests were made, but the black men involved in some of the retaliatory actions were taken to Austin for their own personal safety. Oh, hello, Austin, you liberal island in the middle of Texas. Throughout the so-called Red Summer of 1919, race riots erupted across 25 different cities, but the worst violence was in Chicago. Riots broke out after a young black man accidentally swam into an area of Lake Michigan that was whites only. He was stoned and then he drowned, but police refused to make any arrests. 
Violence spread across Chicago for 13 days, resulting in the deaths of 15 white people and 23 black people. There were hundreds injured and over a thousand black families were made homeless because their homes were burned down or ruined. And the economic problems that prompted a lot of this unrest were just as bad in rural areas. The need for crops was so high during the war that many farmers bought up more land and took out loans to buy new farm equipment. But now, with inflation and a much smaller market, farmers were struggling to make ends meet, and they owed more and more money to the banks. At the same time, black sharecroppers across the South were pushing for their own rights. In Elaine, Arkansas, black sharecroppers tried to organize into a union, inspired by the progressives in the cities. In response, white mobs massacred hundreds of black people in retaliation for this perceived attack on their socioeconomic status. In 1919 alone, there were 83 lynchings across the South, and 11 of those victims were black soldiers returning from the war. Now, this obviously led to disillusionment amongst African Americans who felt like their contributions during the war had been for nothing. But many African Americans also saw this as an opportunity. The nation had just spent years discussing rights, self-determination, and nationalism. Women were gaining the right to vote, and the extreme violence and mistreatment of African Americans, especially decorated war veterans, provided an easy way to highlight the oppression that black people had frankly been experiencing for centuries. After the war, the young NAACP saw a surge in membership, and in 1919, during the Red Summer, they began a new campaign against lynching. Side note, hopefully y'all heard, but Congress just passed the federal lynching legislation that the NAACP had been fighting for for over a century. This is like a week ago. Now, to be clear, lynching was always a crime because it's murder, but the prosecution and punishment of perpetrators was left up to the states. Ugh. So, essentially no one was ever punished for lynching a black person. The legislation that black activists have been wanting for over 100 years and that just passed Congress recently makes lynching a federal hate crime, meaning that the federal government is the one to take control of the case, not the states. So, I mean, way too late, but I guess good on you, Congress. Now, all of this racial violence should also be understood in the context of our first Red Scare. The end of the 19th century saw the rise in new immigrants from places like Eastern and Southern Europe, plus a successful communist revolution in Russia in 1917 didn't help. Now there are riots, strikes, and labor unrest across the country, and a lot of moderate Americans were freaking out. During the Red Summer, as race riots erupted across the country, a series of homemade bombs were being shipped to prominent Americans. In just one month, 30 packages with bombs inside were sent to business owners and politicians by a group that called themselves the Gallianists, supporters of an Italian anarchist. At the same time, popular socialist leader Eugene Debs and current presidential candidate was being put in jail for violating the Espionage Act. Later on that summer, eight bombs exploded within minutes of each other across eight cities, one of which damaged the home of the U.S. Attorney General Mitchell Palmer. And he was like, oh, hell no. So Palmer established a special division within his Justice Department that could root out enemies from within. It would eventually be known as the FBI. Now, this new division conducted a series of raids on union offices, especially unions representing foreign-born Americans, and they deported 249 immigrants across 12 cities in just one month. They continued to raid various radical organizations, eventually arresting over 6,000 people. They entered homes without search warrants, jailed suspects indefinitely with no contact with an attorney, you know, pretty typical Bill of Rights stuff. Most of the 600 immigrants who were eventually deported never even had a court hearing. The effect of these so-called Palmer raids was that, 
Well, Attorney General Palmer became a national American hero, despite the fact that there was never any real evidence of some larger revolutionary conspiracy. Over 30 states passed their own sedition laws, making it illegal to join any group that advocated revolution. Bye-bye, Communist Party of America. And there were increasing calls to severely limit immigration. Spoiler alert, in a few episodes, I'm going to explain how these immigration restrictions are going to inadvertently lead to Pearl Harbor. Foreshadowing. Anyway, by the time the election of 1920 rolled around, people were straight up exhausted. The Democrats ran a progressive ticket under James M. Cox and a relative newcomer as his VP named Franklin Roosevelt. But they were beat in a landslide by Republican Warren G. Harding, who captured the exhaustion and general over-it attitude of white voters by calling for a return to normalcy. The progressive era ended as many white Americans wanted to put their racial, labor, and economic troubles behind them. They just wanted a calm, quiet, definitely not roaring next decade. Oh man, I got some bad news for them. Thanks for listening. For a transcript and links to my sources, go to antisocialstudies.org. Make sure you're following me on Instagram at antisocialstudies and check out my Patreon if you haven't already. If nothing else, spread the word and thank you so much for listening.